Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're looking this morning of the last of the five warnings in Revelation. Verses 14 to 22, we'll look at this morning, Revelation chapter 3, last book of the Bible. I've been saying that the Lord, because he is the sovereign head of the church, he walks among the churches. The churches are called the lampstands. He has the seven stars in his right hand, which are the leaders of the church, the elders, the pastors. And he's evaluating the churches, as we've been noticing along the way, because he wants the church to continue to share the light in the area that he's planted that church. And the things so far that will diminish the light of the gospel is declining love, where a church becomes just a church of loveless orthodoxy, or a church that they allow the truth to slip by tolerating bad doctrine, and they become an indiscriminate church that tolerates bad doctrine. A third thing that will diminish the light is that of compromising with sin within the church. A fourth thing would be that we looked at last week would be that of being complacent or being spiritually apathetic. Today we're going to be looking at the church of Laodicea. The fifth and final warning the Lord gives is that of a church that is steeped in spiritual indifference. And I thought these terms needed to be defined. Complacency means to be self-satisfied without being aware of the possible dangers. Indifference is a lack of interest, a lack of care and concern for something. And of course, in in this case, it would be that they have lost concern for a sense of need for the Lord. It was gone. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I pray as we look at this church and see how you examine it and see what happens when a church gets into this condition and to this place. And I just pray, Lord, that you would challenge us never to go there. And if we see signs of it, that we would quickly take care of it, repent of it, because it is sin before you. And I pray, Lord, that our desire to have a fellowship, an intimate fellowship with you ongoing and growing would always be the obsession and motivation of our life. And when we see that waning, Lord, I pray that we take care of it as soon as possible. And I just pray, Lord, you would teach us the lessons that we need to learn from this passage today. Holy Spirit, we pray you would use it in a way to bring revival to your people. Revive us from inside that our love for you, as we just sung about, would be intensified and our desire to know more of you would increase and become more important than anything else in life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So another way of saying that, of course, is the sense of need for the Lord is gone. This church could be characterized by its indifference and its being comfortable in its culture and its own success. Those are great dangers. Comfort and success are great dangers. Wealth is a great danger to spiritual growth. We think sometimes that's the end result, but it's not. Jesus Christ is sovereign over his church and walks among his people and is present in their midst to examine their spiritual condition to see how they are doing. And as we take a look at Laodicea, 
The city was located some 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia in Asia Minor on the road to Colossae. It stood on traffic routes that went east, west, north, and south. That means all kinds of commerce and people came through this area. The strategic position of this city brought it in, actually brought it enormous wealth. Among its residents, they could find bankers and merchants and financiers. A school of medicine was there, famous for its eye medication. It was probably uh, the medical school there that developed what they call the Persian eye powder. In the ancient world, it became very famous. Laodicea was a natural fortress and posed a challenge to anyone who tried to invade it. Although Laodicea had a very serious weakness, the water supply came principally through a vulnerable aqueduct that laid on the ground for about six miles. By means of this aqueduct, its water either came from the hot springs of Heropolis and cooled down to lukewarmness when it got to Laodicea, or it came from a cooler source in Colossae, which warmed up to lukewarmness when it got to Laodicea. So a place with its water so exposed, it could scarcely stand the siege against it because the enemy, all the enemy army had to do was block the aqueduct. And, of course, the city wouldn't get any water. You know what happens when there's no water. Historical records show that Laodicea's importance and wealth was known for its banking, specifically. And a product of the city was glossy black wool from a strain of long-haired black sheep bred for the trade. Now, all those features are actually identified in the message that the Lord gives to the church. So these features really provide a pattern for the scorn that's going to come against the church. The black garments were exported all over the Mediterranean world. They were famous for this eye ointment. So, in other words, the city's wealth formed a basis for John's writing and the stinging reproaches that he brings against them. So, for all the wealth of this city, they had very poor drinking water. That's important because it's going to come up in the message. So let's look first at the character of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 3, verse number 14, it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Now you notice that this character of Christ And the character the Bible gives us of the person of God is really important because it's going to have something to do with the message. It says three things are said about the Lord's character. And remember, this is the last message and warning to the churches. The first one is that he's the amen. Amen means truly. It means indeed. The term points to the stability of God, that the Lord Jesus is not unstable or fickle. And it's often translated, so be it. In other words, this is the fixed and final revelation of God. In other words, again, all promises in him are yes and amen. That's from 2 Corinthians 1.20 meaning this, that they are certain to be fulfilled. 
Our Lord is steady and unchangeable in his purpose and promises. And that means for us that the Lord is dependable in his character. Second thing it says there in verse 14 is that he is, Jesus is the faithful and the true witness. The testimony of Christ on earth is absolutely reliable and genuine. Therefore, his testimony never, ever falls short of the truth. So God's testimony to men ought to be received and fully believed. If not, if it's not received and fully believed, then, of course, a swift and a true witness will be against them, against all their indifferent lukewarm that is found within that particular church. And this means for us that the Lord is dependable in what he says. He is, he is the witness. Him and the Father witness. And they bring a true witness to us because it's confirmed by more than one. It says also that Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God in verse 14. That means Jesus is the uncreated Son of God who is eternal as the Father. Jesus is the superior to creation, prior to creation. In fact, he is the very tain arxane, which means the originator, the first cause the creator, the governor. Because he is the source of the creation of God, and if not, if he had not been, there would be no creation. All creation exists only in reference to him. He is the creator of the world that says it all over the word of God. In Colossians 1, verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In him all things hold together, and until he takes his hand off of them, they will all explode and be dismantled. We know that's going to happen. When I get to Second Peter, I'll elaborate on that. So all things, John chapter 1, came into being through him, and that apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He was in the world, and the world was made by him or through him, and the world did not know him. The creator of the world was not known by the people and the world that he created. Not only that, but Jesus is the creator of the church. So he is the head of the church, the head of the body of the church. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, and all those who believe in him and follow him as Lord and Savior will also be raised to live with him in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what it says in Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So the church exists only in reference to him. He is the first in time and position. And that means for us that the Lord is dependable in who he is. Now, these three characteristics may strongly suggest that a major reason for the development of such indifference in the church is a neglect of these three things. Matter of fact, these are the very things where the light of the gospel becomes greatly diminished because the gospel is about Christ. If you kind of set aside Christ, move him in a direction that he shouldn't go, and he doesn't become the focal of the preaching and the word, then you have lost it. In other words, this church came to a place where the sufficiency of Christ wasn't so important. 
his reliability, his faithfulness, him being a true witness. Also, the inerrant authority of the word of God wasn't very important. And then, of course, the special creation of all things by God wasn't very important. And all those three, all those three things are heavily attacked today and set aside as not being very important. Again, the Lord is about to evaluate their spiritual condition and the state of the church. And just like the church at Sardis, there is no commendation. Look at verse, well, there's no verse to go to because there's no commendation. <laughs> so, in other words, Jesus, evalu- as the evaluator, doesn't commend this church for anything. The Lord of the church has nothing good to say. Not one encouraging word. His skillful eye finds not even the smallest grain of a good word. Remember, that's not a good place to be. And the Lord has a good, good say about what's going on in your life and what's going on in the church, then that's not good. Also, this church doesn't seem to be plagued by false teaching in the sense of false teachers being in it or under some kind of persecution uh, by an army or even religious opposition. There's no outside threats to the church indicated. Everything appeared to be going as normal. Now, don't we like normal? We like when there's not a lot of drama in our life, don't we? We really do. But tell the truth, if you had no drama in your life ever, you wouldn't grow very much. Matter of fact, you wouldn't do much except do what you wanted to do and comfort, comfort the old flesh and, and, and dict- listen to what the flesh has to do. You'll live by your passions and your desires, but that does not produce any kind of spiritual forward movement and growth. So it is this kind of situation which makes people comfortable to the point that they begin to neglect what is really important. So they would conclude that prosperity and success equaled God's favor. That's exactly what the health, wealth, and prosperity movement concludes. That if you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and all the other things that go with that, then God's not blessing you. But that can be, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Because when you look at Scripture and you see people being persecuted, losing their lives, and churches being persecuted because they're holding to the truth, you would have to conclude, well, they're not being blessed by God. But they are very blessed by God because they were counted worthy to go through that. So what's the condemnation of Jesus? Look at verse 15 through verse 17 of Revelation chapter 3. Verse 15 says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Let me just stop there. The Lord knows their real spiritual condition, even if they can't discern it themselves. See, not to be cold or hot is a very precarious position To be in as a believer, a neutral position is no position, no convictions, takes no stand. It's hard to find out where someone is at when they land somewhere in the middle, especially when it comes to doctrine and truth, because by nature, doctrine is propositional. It's polemical. You have to have a position. You have to know what you believe. Where do you stand? How do you know you're going to heaven or not? How do you get to heaven? How, do you make, how are you supposed to be made right with God? Those, those, are, those are not... You, you, middle-of-the-ground things. There's got to be, I know or I don't know. If you are in the middle, then you probably don't know much. 
And for your information, by way, by the way, mo- most people would take this passage to mean I would rather you be cold, or I would rather you be hot, and that's that's not what it would really that would not be the conclusion that we could have because that means if you were cold, you're in opposition to God, or hot, you would be just on fire for Him. So this is probably, that's probably highly unlikely. It is better to interpret this passage by its historical and geographical context, which I already mentioned. Remember, Laodicea got its water either from the hot springs of Herp- Herpolis that cooled to lukewarmness or from the cooler source of Colossae, which warmed to lukewarmness. In other words, the water was nauseating, which represented their deep, deplorable spiritual condition. Our Lord's point to them is something like this. You provide neither healing for the spiritual sick nor refreshment for the spiritual thirsty. You have nothing to offer. It was Matthew Henry, the old commentary set. I don't know if you have those old commentary sets. It's all public domain now. But he said this. He says, if a religion is a real thing, it is the most excellent thing, and therefore we should be in good earnest in it. If it is not a real thing, it is the vilest imposter. And we should be earnest against it. If religion is worth anything, it is worth everything, and indifference here is inexcusable. And that's true to this passage. Like the pastor who visited a church member to probe further as to what he really believed concerning his eternal destiny because he was at the point of death. And... uh, Let's say the man was name was Jim. He said, Jim, the, the pastor asked, what do you believe? And Jim says, I believe what the church believes. And well, the pastor says, well, what does the church believe? And he says, I believe that it believes what I believe. And finally, the pastor says, well, what do you in the church believe? And Jim's reply was pretty much the same thing. I mean, it, it is funny, but it is sad. Because I do not think that response is uncommon. When you really press somebody about where they are spiritually, they can't really answer it unless they have been in the God's word and they have been walking and living for Christ. So to be half-hearted, double-minded, indecisive, tolerant of everyone's opinion, and just comfortable with the status quo is totally unacceptable in real Christianity. If that was true, then the passages about putting your armor on and becoming a soldier of Jesus Christ means nothing. Just as the prophet Elijah asked the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions. That's a neutral position. And this is what he said to them. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Meaning this, there is no middle ground spiritually. You will either serve God or you will serve someone else. Some other idol. Or yourself. Which you will be the idol then. So we cannot straddle the fence. You cannot have one foot in the boat and one foot on the shore. There is no room for neutrality in the Christian faith. Even Joshua, after the conquest of the promised land was done, which took about 50 years, And the land inheritances were given to the people. At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua challenges the people. And listen to what he says to them. 
from Joshua 24, verse 13 to 15. He said this, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them and are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And then he says this, if it is disagreeable with you in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve the same thing if you do not serve God, you will serve something. And that's where your heart will be. And then he says this to them, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, he took a stand. That's propositional truth, right? That's what he said, I will do. Me and my family will do this. If no one else does it, we will do it. See, that's clear, is it not? Is not truth clear? Is that, not, is that position unclear? No. That position is very clear. But if somebody says, well, I, I don't really know, I, I don't, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, that's not clear. I don't, I don't know where you stand. In other words, you need, as a, a believer, you need, to, you need to know where you stand, and when people talk to you, they, they need to know where you stand. Yes, you will make enemies that way, and you will make friends that way. Probably more enemies than friends, but don't worry about that. God will take care of that. One person, one person named Fred Tafford said Laodicea was a spiritual chameleon, accommodating themselves to the moods of the time. We have been suffering in America from an American-ism called pragmatism. And what, is, what has pragmatism brought America? Well, it brought this, that the church accommodates the dictates and the whims of the culture in which it lives, instead of the other way around. And we are led by a country of weak men, foolish women, and young people. And if we stay there, it will be our own destruction. We won't have to worry about an army coming to take us over. We're doing a good job on ourselves. So what's the Lord's diagnosis? Look at verse number 16 of chapter 3. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's pretty Tough language, but I tell you what, it is clear. The diagnosis is identifying the illness and the disorder. Could you imagine if you went to a doctor and you had a serious disease and he never gave you a clear understanding of what you actually had wrong with you? You walk out of there saying, I don't know, I don't know what to do, you know, more vitamin C or something. So their condition of being lukewarm is a condition that is critical, but it is not terminal yet. A lukewarm beverage is not the norm. In fact, it's quite outside the norm. You don't go to Starbucks to get a lukewarm drink, do you? They wouldn't make any business. They would close their doors. So either people order a hot drink or a cold drink. And usually when something is lukewarm, something has gone drastically wrong. When I leave my cup of tea or coffee on the counter and I go off in some other adventure and come back to it and it's cold, and it's, oh, I just, either I put it back in the microwave and nuke it again, right? Or I dump it out and start all over again. But drinking something that is tepid, is nauseating. So the contrast here is between the hot medicinal waters of 
Hierapolis and the cold, pure waters of Colossae. By the time the waters reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm, providing neither refreshment for its spiritual weary, nor healing or comfort for the spiritually sick. So the spiritual condition becomes an irritation to the mouth and the stom- and finally to the stomach. And this kind of irritation naturally in the natural realm, in the body, takes measures to deal with that irritation. And those measures are vomiting. The body hurls and rejects the stomach's, stomach's contents out and away from the body. And you know... I hate to throw up. I don't know. But I, I try everything in I can possibly think of not to. But you know that when it comes time for you to hurl, you cannot stop it. it it's, it's that kind of thing. And so, in other words, this is how the church ought to act when it detects indifference. Spiritual indifference ought to be vomited out and away from you and kept away from you. So this is a picture of how nauseating and distasteful this condition is to our Lord. Look what it says in Revelation 3.16. I will spit you out of my mouth. I will vomit you. God is disgusted with lukewarm believers, and if the condition persists, he will vomit them out. If there is a failure of repentance, then the church must perish. For it is better for this type of church to go out of existence because it's no longer a New Testament church. It's just a social club that makes people feel good feel safe, and feel comfortable, and we must take up the, pro- the, the warning of the prophet Amos where he said, woe to them that are ease, at ease in Zion. A warning to be too comfortable, to be indifferent, to be on the middle ground, never to take a stand. The reason for this tepid condition is found in Revelation 3.17. Indifference will eventually lead to ignorance, especially as, as it is to one's spirituali- spiritualities. So that was Jesus' diagnosis. Now look at, in verse number 17, the Laodicean church's diagnosis of themselves. Look what it says. Well, before I look at that, verse 17 They are saying something. They are saying we have become someone. We have arrived at stability. We are self-supporting and self-sufficient. The Lord should be proud of us. Right? Look at it. It says in verse 17, because you say, I am rich. And I have become wealthy. And I have need, I have need of nothing. That's, that's how they view, let me just stop right there, that's how they view themselves. The, the church has lost discernment to see spiritual reality. It had judged itself and found itself doing just fine. How are you doing? We're doing fine. All our needs are provided for, the bills are paid. We've got money in the bank. We're doing great. See, because the church was materially rich, they assumed that they were also spiritually rich. And believe me, those two things are the furthest part that they possibly can be. The church may have acquired large and beautiful facilities, developed special programs of many kinds, featured a variety of musicians, and even put out 
you know, songs for all the other churches to use, and other artists, and even gain a measure of political power because they're such a large and successful and prosperous and wealthy church, they conclude, we, we don't see we need any help. See, their boastful pride and their self-sufficiency rendered them blind to the truth. They were a great and self-sufficient organization, but they were not a great church. Two different things. You can be a great organization, have everything going for you that the world, the business world will say, man, you got everything that you're supposed to have when you're supposed to have it, and you're doing great. But the Lord looks at the church and says, no, I'm going to puke you out of my mouth because you're not doing great spiritually. So what's Jesus' prognosis? Well, look at verse 17, the last part of the verse is, which really, which is a prediction. A prognosis is a prediction about how a given situation will develop. In this case, it's how a situation has developed. If one if someone said to you, Hey, I know you're I know you're wretched. And then they said to you, and you know why you're also miserable. Now that that seems to me would be enough at least to get the diagnosis, prognosis across. Yet our Lord gives five descriptive adjectives. And look what he says in verse 17, the end of the verse, it says, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They're miserable and they're to be pitied. They're poor, and yet the city, they live in a city that bragged about its banking, its commerce, its wealth. They are blind, and they prided themselves on the school of Pergian that gave an eye power powder that healed eye diseases, and yet they have spiritual cataracts. I'm correct, I think cataracts kind of shuts out the light. So if you don't get something done, you, you get your eye sight becomes diminished. Well, they have spiritual cataracts. And it, spiritual cataracts shuts out the light. The spiritual, so they have no spiritual sight. If left in that condition, they would ultimately go spiritually blind. And they were naked, even though they prided themselves on, on, on producing glossy black wool. They could not cover their nakedness with that. How painful such an evaluation would have been by the Lord. That will humble you quickly, especially when you don't see your condition. They did not discern themselves in such a spiritual condition. So material riches often breed spiritual poverty, which lead to a false assumption of one's spiritual well-being. Just because all your needs are met and you have everything going for you don't mean you're doing well spiritually. So what's the counsel the Lord gives? Look at verse number 18. The Lord does give therapy to this problem. Remember, they, they have a, a tough condition, but it's not terminal yet. Here's his counsel. He says in verse 18, I advise you. Now, before I go any further, the Lord does not, uh, in his counsel, as the great physician, Christ speaks in their own language and says to them, listen, you have been shopping at the wrong store. You have been shopping at the store of the world, at the store of success.
you have obtained imaginary wealth that will pass away with this temporary world. Look at what it says in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Now, buy does not imply that we can buy any work or merit uh, of the purchase of God's free gift, but that from Christ, true and lasting riches can be purchased with the currency of faith and trust and dependence on Christ. So buying gold refined by fire is a picture of obtaining a purity through the the refining process. This usually includes the purifying effects of suffering and trials and what it actually produces. And what it usually produces is a high quality of faith in the right things. And, of course, a faith that's able also to withstand trials. So if this comfortable, lukewarm church is to to renounce all self-reliance or self-righteousness, then persecution will get the dross out of their heart and will produce a refined faith. So a lukewarm warm church, was, this lukewarm church was lacking genuine faith. Then verse number 18, notice, and buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. They were clothed in the finest of earthly garb, yet before God they were spiritually exposed, ashamed, naked. And so Jesus further counseled them to purchase white clothing, a figure likely based upon the fact that Laodicea was famous for its woolen black material and garments. So Christ offers them whiter garments, garments, in other words, of righteousness, covering their nakedness with an an inner inclination toward righteous deeds, that if you are a righteous person declared righteous by God, you will produce righteous deeds in line with a brand new heart that comes from Christ. And that means at Christ's return, they would not be utterly disgraced, but be found clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If that's all they have, that will be enough. Their garments would, be, would clothe the Laodiceans so that they would no longer be naked and ashamed. So this lukewarm church was lacking in a disposition towards righteousness, meaning they needed the righteousness of Christ. And then in verse 18, they would need to buy eye salve to anoint the eyes so that they may see. So these their earthly accomplishments were meaningless. They needed proper spiritual vision. They needed spiritual cataract surgery to let the light in. They needed a, the ISAV that is applied spiritually so they can see their own condition and see how far they've moved from that condition and, of course, begin to repent of that condition and get back to where they ought to be as believers. So this lukewarm church was lacking a spiritual discernment of spiritual matters, and they needed Christ's remedy very badly. So we must see that their spiritual blindness must lead somewhere. 
either it will lead to their condition becoming worse and they would cease to become what Christ wanted them to be or they would repent and they would receive spiritual healing from Christ alone. And so that's what he says. Look at verse number 19. Here's the challenge the Lord gives to the church. In other words, chastisement if you don't repent. And he uses the word here, zealously repent. Look what it says in verse number 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. In other words, make, this is no middle of the ground repentance. This is a decisive repentance that will end all your your lukewarmness. The Lord is actually expressing love. The word here for love is not agape, but phileo, a friend's love. Someone you have deep feeling for. And so the Lord says, listen, I'm going to discipline you as a loving father, and I'm going to educate you if you don't repent. And why am I going to do that? So real believers will become distinguishable from lukewarm pretenders. One commentary said this, let my strong criticism of you open your eyes at once to the need of repentance and also to the fact that it is really love on my part that prompts me to reprove and chastise you, a realization of my loving concern as well as your own desperate condition should bring a resolute change of purpose and kindle within you a warm fervor of devotion that will dispense with lukewarmness. Vomit it out. Get rid of it and get it away from you. So part of living the Christian life, part of running the race that God's called us to is removing those things which will slow you down and hinder you from making good spiritual progress. But also along the way, the important things are learned by God spiritually spanking us. And that's through the Heavenly Father's school of discipline. He will teach us things that are extremely important to us through our throughout our, our days and in our troubles that we could not easily receive if everything went well for us all the time. So if you're spiritually disciplined by the Father, you're in. You're one of his kids. And any father who cares a lick about his kids Well, when his kids are acting up, being disobedient, being rebellion, that child should know that the rod of correction is coming to drive away that rebellion and that disobedience from their heart. So the child learns to listen to the voice of his parents. And ultimately, he will listen to the voice of God someday when he comes to know or she comes to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when they leave home that voice will be louder than all the other voices. So if you're disciplined by God, you're one of his kids because he loves us enough and cares for us enough not to allow us to go on with bad behavior. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, listen to what it says. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son who he receives. And why discipline? So that we would learn how to live a holy life 
so we don't forget and we always remember how the Lord takes care of us and how the Lord teaches us. And that when we're disciplined, we won't despise the discipline because we will be at a place where we know we need it. And we won't faint or quit in the discipline. For as it says in Hebrews 12, 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So here is the most plain and convincing evidence that you are truly belonging to God's family. The Heavenly Father, who is deeply concerned for his children, chastises them. That's an old King James word. He applies the disciplined hand to the seat of knowledge. However painful it may be at the time, painful discipline is necessary in order to rid us of unnecessary weights and the easily entangling sins that we acquire and do not take care of, that do not produce maturity or bear the characteristics of God in our life, those need to be discarded. And one way they are is when God disciplines us. Because he's not going to let us go on in a sin over for a long period of time without him stepping in. He wants us to take care of it. That's why we have the Lord's table. When we come together to the Lord's table, we examine ourselves, right? How are we doing spiritually? Are we indifferent to spiritual things? Are we apathetic? Are we complacent? How we allowed false doctrine into our thinking? Are we not taking care of sin, just looking the other way? See, we, we have this knowledge from the Word of God to actually examine ourselves spiritually and come to a very good conclusion on how we're doing. And if we don't do that, God will. I guarantee he will. Chastisement is applied to all God's children. Not to kill us, but to correct us and show we truly belong to the family of God. And as legitimate sons and daughters, special objects of God's care and love, and God doesn't allow his kids in his family to not live a certain way. He will correct us. But... You want assurance of salvation? Wait till God disciplines you. When you prayed to get out of it, and God's not letting you out of it. When you brought it to the prayer list, and you put it on the prayer list, and the whole church is praying for it, and God's not letting you out of it. A child of God has to go immediately to the Lord and says, Lord, you're teaching me something here. Show me what it is. And let me humble myself before you, Examine me, and if there's something that I'm seeing, search me, try me, know me. And if I am not living the way in a way that pleases you, show me what it is and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, do that with me. That's where we'll, the Lord will bring you more than once in your Christian walk. Because you realize the way you've been going has not, you're just dead and cold. You're like a, a, a fish out of water flopping around, no direction, and you kind of feel like you're cold. Jesus says here in this passage, zeal in place of lukewarmness. Lukewarmness does not have to be terminal. Look what it says in verse 20. Here's kind of a promise because if you do that, if you repent, then you will have more closer communion with me. Verse 20, it says, Behold, here's that passage of Scripture everybody uses, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is a a verse to the church. And this is a concluding verse, actually, to all the churches that are represented in the five churches. That if they listen to Christ's evaluation of their situation, good or bad, and willing to repent, Jesus takes the position outside the church, knocking, and will always come in if we invite him. He will always be ready to forgive, to repair, to restore a genuine repentant heart. And for what reason? So we can have sweet fellowship with Christ and he can have sweet fellowship with us. And that's what the picture is. You come in and you sit at a table with the Lord and you dine with him. That's the Lord's table, really. Because what, what is that? You know what that's a picture of? He's, the Lord's not my enemy. The Lord is my friend. And I want to worship him, and he wants fellowship with us as his children, as his sheep. And we gather around the table, and we enjoy each other's company. That's the picture there. That's a sweet picture. And that's what the Lord wants. And you know what? Deep in every Christian's life, that's what Christians want. I want just to be able to love you, Lord, live for you, serve you, and do your work. And when it's time for me to leave or you to come, it'll be the right time. Now, there could be, and this is a possibility here, that this is an eschatological door, an end-time door. In other words, the Lord is speaking to the church at the end. The phraseology actually comes from the Song of Solomon, where it says in Song of Solomon, I was asleep, but my heart was awake, a voice. My beloved was knocking to open, open to me. My sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew and my locks with the damp of the night. So so in this, this passage, the bridegroom knocks and seeks to be admitted by the bride. So Christ presents himself right at the verge of entering, coming so furnishes incentive to the church to heed his commands to repent because he's coming. So here, the interpretation is the end-time door through which Christ will enter at his second coming. And this picture stresses the urgency for people to seek a right relationship with Christ and if you are a believer, to make sure that you are growing in your knowledge and wisdom and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ because he is coming. And I love at the end, the Lord always gives a promise to those who are repentant. Look what he says in verse number 21, chapter 3. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Just wrap your mind around that. The Lord promises that we will reign with him in the new heaven and new earth, in the new kingdom. We will be reigning with Christ. When Christ comes back again, he comes back with his saints to establish his thrown in Jerusalem on this earth. And you know what? We are reigning with him. We are ruling the world with him. 
That's the promise he gives to the church. I don't know about you, that, that, that kind of gets me excited, except, you know, I don't know the full implications of all of what that means. I don't think anybody does. But the promise is, is we're going to be reigning with Christ. L- listen to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That, that's very clear statements there. So that's the promise. And of course, he ends again the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That God's people have listening ears. They hear his voice and they follow him. And they know his voice. And they do what he says. And they love to hear his voice. So if you detect even the slightest slide into this nauseating condition of spiritual indifference today, right now, you must zealously repent of it. And why do we need to do that as a church, as individuals? So the gospel light does not get diminished and our fellowship with Christ becomes more intimate. That's why. And I think that's a good reason why, right? So I tell you what, before I pray, let's just take a few minutes. Right where you're at. Whatever, whatever, just stop what you're doing, close your Bibles, and let's just take a few minutes and pray before the Lord and ask the Lord that if you don't know yourself, that he would examine you and make clear to you where you are right now, whether you're a believer. And if you are a believer, are you growing in the Lord? Do you desire him? And ask the Lord to show you and then where you need to repent, repent, and then give God the glory and go on to serve and live for him. Just a few minutes. You can pray aloud if you want. Lord, this this morning we uh, come to you as servant of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would examine us as a church. That, Lord, if we have any tinge of declining love or have slipped away from the truth to tolerate bad doctrine, or, Lord, to compromise sin within or have been apathetic and complacent or have been spiritually indifferent in any way, Lord. We lost interest and care and concern, especially of our need for you and the need for to be 
definitely growing in understanding the sufficiency of Christ and the authority of the Word of God and, and just, Lord, your character that reflects who you are and how we are to live. I pray, Lord, that today you would search us and try us and know us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would correct us. If we don't correct ourselves, correct us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us that assurance that we are one of your children. And I pray, Lord, that we would remain ever sensitive to slipping into any of these sins so we can hear the pleasant words of our Lord, come thou good and faithful servant. So Lord, make us ready because you're coming. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't do it in a half-hearted manner, but we would do it zealously from a, a deep conviction and sense that's deep in our heart I pray, Lord, that we would do it so we can continue to uphold the light of the gospel and that we would have sweeter, more abiding fellowship with you week by week, month by month, year by year. And I thank you, Lord, for your word and for all that you'll do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.